Well, with everything that is going poorly as we look out upon our nation and our state, we think it's a really good idea to focus and hone in on some of the good things that are happening. And there's probably nothing better happening than what happened in the Supreme Court. So we're going to bring on the president and founder of the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty, Matt Clark, to talk about some of these cases. He's a constitutional attorney. He's going to be walking step by step through each of the three major cases that were handed down by the United States Supreme Court and talk about them from an originalist constitutional standpoint. You're not going to want to miss this. We have an incredible culture here in the state of Alabama, but our politics and public policy don't reflect the people of Alabama. Media drives culture. Culture is what drives politics and public policy. Welcome everyone to 1819 News, the podcast. I'm Brian Dawson, host of this year podcast and CEO of 1819 News. Today, I'm joined uh, by a good friend and colleague, um, a constitutional lawyer and president and founder of the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty, Matt Clark. Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Brian. Better than I deserve. How are you? Oh, about the same. (laughs) We're we're recording late in the afternoon, later than we usually do, so we're both a a little bit tired. So hopefully we can uh, get really excited as we get into the content and start uh, bringing it to you guys. So uh, today, um, we're going to be talking about um, specifically the three big decisions that the Supreme Court made, uh, why they matter. Um, obviously, Roe versus Wade was the big one. Uh, there was a, a Second Amendment decision that was made uh, as it pertained to one of the northeastern states and how that applies to us. And then there was a religious liberty uh, case that was decided that was pretty monumental as it related to religious liberty, uh, a coach praying in the 50-yard line at a school and whether he was able to do that and those things. And so, um, the kind of the origin of why I'm having Matt on, he came and spoke at my church and just gave an incredible presentation and had just tremendous insight into these cases, not only, uh, from a constitutional perspective, but also from a biblical perspective. And, uh, I thought that was tremendously valuable. Uh, and as soon as he got done with it, I said, man, I got to get you on the podcast and basically let you give that presentation to my audience because, uh, it, it was, it was really, really amazing. And I think, on your on your notes, uh, you had uh, was it Luther Martin Luther on one side and Clarence Thomas on the other? <laughs> yeah, that's right. My my wife when she saw that when we printed out the handouts, she says, the, "Yep, the, I am not surprised when you're when you're teaching. This is exactly what you would do." And she was right. Yep. So there you go, uh, Martin Luther and Clarence Thomas. Well, good stuff. Um, so, guys, as always, we always want to tell people where they can find the podcast. You can go to. Uh, 1819news.com, find it there. While you're there, press the subscribe button, subscribe to the daily newsletter so you're getting that every day. If you've already done that, tell your friends to do that, and then you can get our podcast, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, YouTube, wherever else podcasts are found. Uh, Go there, click the bell, subscribe, leave us a five-star review, tell everyone how much you love the podcast because we know you do. Uh, And with that, we'll jump right in. So, Matt... Tell us, um, I guess, just jump in and and go into those cases um, and kind of how you want to begin that presentation. Sure, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, Brian, um, there has not been a more exciting time in an Amer- in American history to be a conservative constitutional lawyer than right now. Um, I went to law school because I just got tired of seeing the judicial branch um, pervert the Constitution, make up things in the Constitution that really weren't there, and and use that to do things like crush liberty, destroy life, like in the case of Roe versus Wade, um, and and really to defeat the ends of the Constitution itself was passed uh, to to secure. 
Um, so I think for a lot of us younger conservative lawyers, this stuff got us in the fight. And now, um, because we finally have the first conservative U.S. Supreme Court that we've had since before the New Deal era, uh, we finally have a court that cares a lot about what the Constitution says, what it means. And when they're asked to overrule bad precedent, um, they're inclined to do it. That, that has been a big problem for us in the past with, um, you know, when, when the court gets confronted with the fact that it made a bad decision, like it did in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, it decided to keep that bad decision because it said, well, you know, we might have messed up, but if we start overruling our precedents, people are going to lose faith in us. Um, and at the end of the day, though, I mean, if a decision is clearly wrong, it is clearly contrary to the Constitution, your oath is to uphold the Constitution itself. So you overrule the bad precedent and you do the right thing. It really is that simple. Uh, it should have been that simple, but now we finally have a U.S. Supreme Court that is thinking along those lines um, and is very, very refreshing for those of us who believe that the Constitution should be interpreted according to its words and according to its original meaning. So um, this, past, uh, this past term, the Supreme Court handed down a lot of interesting wins. Um, you know, one of them was the OSHA vaccine mandate case, which I was in on, got to represent an Alabama construction company that wanted to fight back. And uh, the, the court, you know, struck down the OSHA mandate. And that was that was huge. Um, it, it handed down a number of other decisions like that that were definitely very good for America. But I want to zero in today on what I consider probably the three biggest um, decisions of this past term. Uh, the first was throwing Roe versus Wade out. It did that in Dobbs versus um, a Jackson Women's Health Organization. Uh, it threw out about 50 to 70 years of bad establishment clause precedent in uh, in uh, Coach Kennedy's cases, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. And it, it upheld what the Second Amendment says when it says not only the right to keep arms, but the right to bear arms shall not be infringed. It did that uh, in the Bruin case. Uh, that that was a huge win for the right of uh, average Americans to be able to uh, carry firearms for self-defense. So that's kind of an overview of what what I think the, the, the three biggest decisions are. And I can take them one at a time, talk about, you know, what the court held, um, why it matters. And then finally, you know, as, as Christians, we want to um, look at it through a biblical view and ask, all right, according to God's standards, did you get this right? Yeah. So, um, and I think the answer to all three is yes, but I'm happy to dive into details yeah. on those. Well, let's do it. And real quick, an interesting thing you said, and again, you know, it's definitely not a one-to-one -one comparison, but as a parent, um, when you, when you make a mistake as a parent, you know, you, the, the goal isn't, well, I can't let my kids know I made a mistake. If I apologize, they'll lose trust in me. Right. Mm -hmm. And it seems a little bit like that's what the Supreme Court is saying, where it's like, well, we, we should probably overturn this because it's wrong. But if we overturn this mistake that we made, we would be admitting we were wrong. And if we were wrong, then people won't have faith in us. It's like, no, actually, you know, coming from a, a right worldview and a right way of thinking, it's like, no, actually, we would have faith in you that you that you corrected a mistake and it was a clear mistake. And you can show point to where this is a mistake and why. Um, and say, we actually want to clean this up, which is, which is what just happened. Um, and so I think there's more trust in the Supreme court now, um, you know, at, at least from, you know, conservatives and Christians and people who want to see freedom reign, um, in the Supreme court than, than has been in my entire life. And I remember where I thought courts only made good decisions. There was a time in my life where I just blindly trusted the institution so much. And then hearing about, you know, 
kind of the politicization and legislating from the bench and all these things as I've gotten older and gotten involved in politics and it's, it's scary stuff. So, um, you know, for all these crazy things that are happening and all these, you know, horrible things in our country and in our state that can become overwhelming at times, you know, God is still working. And you can see that when the Supreme court comes through with just three grand slam decisions, there was really, I think another one, Forget which one it was. There was there was four, but those were the three. Might primary. have been West Virginia versus EPA. Where they, yes, they that's killed. it. Yep, okay. that's it. I can talk about that one too if you yeah. like. But yeah, that was a major win. <laughs> Matt can talk about it all. We'll, we'll keep them all day. <laughs> well, yeah, no, go ahead, jump in. Um, let's start. Obviously, Roe v. Wade, the biggin. Um, talk about that from a constitutional perspective. What happened, and then and then from a biblical perspective. Absolutely. All right. So, um, I think you know Roe v. Wade was the the thing that got many evangelical Christians involved in the political process saying, you know, we, when you get to the point where, um, you're, you're murdering innocent babies, uh, that's, that's about as bad as it gets. And we got to try to do something about that. So for, for many of us, uh, this has been something that we've been praying for and fighting for, for, uh, for, for years or even decades. Um, so getting to see Roe finally fall is is the answer to to many prayers, and and I think uh, I think the court's decision in Dobbs is going to go down as the greatest uh, Supreme Court decision in U.S. history. I agree with you, Brian. Now that the court admitted that it messed up and it made it right, you know my confidence in the judiciary goes up, not down, and I think many Americans are thinking the same thing. Um, so let's let's give some background. Uh, I, I'm I'm presuming that. Uh, most of the audience here is is um, at least familiar with the basics of Roe, so I'll try to keep the background information to a minimum. But let's you know set the stage here before walking up to Dobbs. Um, in 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court held in Roe v.ersus Wade that the 14th Amendment's due process clause protects the right to an abortion. Um, now let's actually go back to the text of the Constitution because that's what we want to do. You know, we want to evaluate because the court's opinion is right only in as much as it fits. So. The Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment says that no state shall deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. This was passed in 1868. It was after the Civil War, and it was guaranteed, to, it was intended to guarantee that uh, recently freed blacks in the South would have their civil rights protected, and that was a good thing. Um, you know, the, the 14th Amendment and, and the Reconstruction Amendments, I think, supplied the defect that was present at our founding. We had a lot of good principles. We had the right principles. We just didn't always apply them consistently, but uh, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment uh, fixed that. So with the 14th Amendment, uh, it was, the, the, the Due Process Clause in particular was intended to be a check against arbitrary government action. Um, throughout many countries in the world that are dictatorships or, or things like that, uh, you have secret police, like, you know, the Nazis had the SS and, and uh, the Soviets had the KGB, etc. And, you know, what they can do, they can lay hands on political opponents, snatch them off the streets, send them off to the gulags or concentration camps, uh, things like without ever really getting a meaningful chance to defend themselves or, or get off. The Due Process Clause was made to guarantee that that would never happen here. It means that if the government is trying to deprive you of life or your freedom or your property, it can only do so if it gives you due process, which means by the law of the land. All right. So again, it is a principle that we have laws that have to be followed when the government tries to do something to you. And that is a beautiful thing. But what started happening was just like nowadays uh, where you have um, liberal preachers 
that cut out parts of the Bible that they don't like, uh, the Supreme Court started cutting out parts of the Due Process Clause that it didn't like. Mm. You know, like for instance, in Matthew uh, seven, uh, probably about the only part of the Bible that liberals know: uh, "Judge not, lest you be judged." Uh, for the same <laughs> measure uh, you use, it will be used back uh, to you. And it goes on. It's really a prudential warning, meaning, okay, you got to watch out because the standard that you use on other people is eventually what's going to come back for you. And if you have a problem with hypocrisy, you need to clean that up before you start correcting other people. And I believe all that. I know you do too, and I believe our listeners yeah. do too. But what happens is they come along and they pretty much take a pen and cross out everything that appears after judge not, and then that's all that you're left with. <laughs> so in the same way, you know, the same way with the due process clause, it's like they cut out, you know, um, a key parts. So all that's left is that the states can't deprive people of liberty. Um, so that's how you get to crazy decisions for saying you have like a liberty interest in terminating your pregnancy. Uh, it, you can only do that by by taking a pen and crossing out parts of the Constitution that you don't like. So um, you don't need to be a lawyer to understand this. You just need to be able to read, write, and understand English. And if you do, you can understand how the Supreme Court screwed up. And, and unfortunately, this isn't just an academic matter. It's not just a matter of uh, getting the grammar of the Constitution wrong. It is a decision that resulted in over 63 million abortions between 1973 and now. So uh, that's 10 times the amount of Jews murdered in the Holocaust. It's 20 times the amount of people that we lost uh, during the Civil War. It's, uh, it, it, it really is a bloodbath. It, it, it is an abortion Holocaust. And the, the guilt falls on the United States Supreme Court for unleashing that on the states. Because at the time, most states either banned or at least severely restricted abortion. And the U.S. Supreme Court came along and said, nah, we don't like that anymore. Um, so both because of how badly it butchered the Constitution and how it led to the butchery of unborn children, um, many people considered Roe to be the worst constitutional decision of all time. Uh, in 1992, we thought we had a shot at throwing Roe out in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and we got surprised because the court voted 5-4 to four to keep Roe's core. They made some adjustments to its framework, but at the end of the day, it came down to the issue that you, you talked about, Brian, where you know they said, well you know what, uh, if we start overthrowing decisions, people are going to lose faith in us, so we, we kind of need to keep this decision uh, in order to save face. And that, that was absolutely awful as well. So fast forward here to uh, 2022. Um, we had... Uh, 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 we, we, we had Mississippi pass a law that banned abortion after 15 weeks. Now, as bad as Roe and Casey were, they actually allowed uh, some room for the government to step in and protect the lives of the unborn after they reach a certain point. That's called the point of viability, where the baby can survive outside the womb. And um, the uh, so Mississippi decided to, uh, to, to kind of cross the line just a little bit and dare people to come after them. Because nobody really knows where the viability line is. You know, a lot of people thought it's somewhere between 16 and 24 weeks. So by banning abortion after 15 weeks, it's like the court had drawn a line in the sand and Mississippi barely stepped over it. But they said, all right, we want to test this and we want to see what we can do. Um, so they got sued and the case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and the court agreed to hear it. Once the court agreed to hear it, uh, Mississippi went all in and they said, you know what? Uh, this 15-week abortion ban ought to stay because there is no right to abortion in the Constitution. So I really got to give um, major credit to uh, the state of Mississippi, to Scott Stewart, uh, who's the guy who argued the case. I've had a chance to meet him like three times in person since um, since he argued it. But uh, they, they decided to, to go all in and just attack Roe directly. Now, interesting point on the side. Um, 
right before the court took the the Dobbs case, um, I came out with a law review article. Uh, law Review is a scholarly journal that um, just about every law school has where you get to debate academic ideas. And at that point, I said, you know what, I think we have five, maybe even six votes to throw row out if somebody will just be bold enough to ask. I laid out a game plan for attacking it, and I said, if we attack it this way, I think we'll be good. Um, I, I said that to uh, Mississippi when the Dobbs case was uh, accepted, and I was pleased to see that um, when when they took the shot, their plan lined up about 90% with what we had recommended. And so did the Supreme Court's opinion when it came out. So does that mean that we caused it? That's an awfully bold claim. I'm not going to go that far. But I do think, uh, based on the evidence that we have, I do think that we probably contributed to helping convince Mississippi, you can do this if you take the shot. Uh, my guess is that they were already thinking it, but I'm hoping that um, you know we got to help encourage them to, to go for it. So um, the court, uh, as you know, threw Roe out. And uh, we had five justices that agreed it was time for Roe to go. Um, now, how they did that, I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you. They didn't go as far as I wanted. Uh, Justice Clarence Thomas is the only one who just pretty much said the emperor is naked. It's like it's not in the Constitution. You can't justify it in light of what the Constitution says. So you can't you can't even get uh, you can't even uh, remotely try to justify Roe's validity. Um, the other justices, what they said was, okay, we're not prepared to say that there aren't rights in the Constitution that aren't protected, but if it's going to be protected, it has to be deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. And the simple fact is that did not exist in Roe uh, at all. That the, there, there is no deeply uh, rooted right to abortion in American history. Uh, at the time that they passed the 14th Amendment, uh, pretty much all the states had outlawed abortion. Uh, and the public sentiment was that unborn children are people and deserve to have their lives protected just like everybody else does. And in 1973, only a few states had decriminalized abortion. Most still had it criminalized. So if, if the standard is, um, you know, what does the history of our people teach? Uh, and we're only going to recognize the right to an abortion if there's a deeply rooted right. Um, then what it comes down to is that there is no right to abortion in the Constitution. So I think the court did the right thing. Uh, I wish kind of like Justice Thomas that would have gone one step further and uh, had a little bit more of a purist analysis. But when we're talking about the end of mass murder, I will take just about whatever reasoning you give me that's, you know, as long as it's not like sinful, you know. And uh, so the court, uh, I think the court made a very good decision. Um, it, it would be a mistake to say that abortion is now illegal. I think... Um, it's more accurate to say that it has gone back to the states. So Alabama has chosen to ban it. California is is adopting pro-abortion policies that would probably even make Moloch blush if uh, if he was real. Yeah. Um, but uh, uh, you know, the, the letting the states decide is much much better than what we had before, which is the Supreme Court deciding for the entire nation that babies uh, are are free to be murdered up until they reach a certain point. Do you know, as Congress or the United States Senate, are they um, pushing to try and enshrine that right with, with, you know, the bill on Capitol Hill approach? Yeah, yeah, they are. So um, the Democrats right now in Congress, I, I believe the House of Representatives voted to enshrine a right to abortion in the Constitution. Um, because the filibuster is holding in the Senate, that's not going to go anywhere. So we don't have to worry about that. The, the thing that I worry about a little bit is that the Biden administration may try um, the pen and a phone approach to where they try to look at what options they have, say, to issue um, administrative regulations that uh, protect the right to an abortion. 
um, I believe the Biden administration is is uh, pushing um, for medical centers that accept Medicaid and Medicare to you know ensure that they have people uh, there that um, can perform abortions if uh, if needed. Um, and I think too they're they're trying different angles like that to try to use the administrative state to um, to to get abortion back on the table. And then if there's a conflict between state law and the administrative regulation, they're claiming that federal law prevails. So um, that's what they're going to try. Uh, fortunately, I think the the Supreme Court is um, you know they, they handed out three big wins against the administrative state this past term. Um, and so they've given us a lot of tools to work with to to beat up on the federal administrative state when it oversteps. So if they try something like that, I don't think it's going to be successful. Yeah. All right. Well, um, very similar to the, the presentation you did at my church, kind of go into now that's the kind of constitutional look at it. They made the right decision. This is why. Um, and I mean, if you want, you can go through a biblical worldview or we can just maybe stick to the constitutional issues. Um however you want yeah. to go. Yeah, I think uh, I, I think getting into the biblical angle would be fantastic um, because as Christians, um, you know, we, for, for us, it's it's not uh, solely a question of what does the law say, but there's a deeper question of what does God say about this? You know, sometimes uh, human laws do not square up with the law of God. And it, it's at times like that where we have to be galvanized, we have to push for change, and we have to uh, explore our options. Um, but I think as many evangelicals uh, have believed for a long time, and, and even our Catholic friends, like I'm not Catholic, but I will give the Catholics props. They were organized and they were in on the pro-life fight, uh, you know, long before uh, long before we were. Um, but as many Christians have held for for most of church history, yes, abortion is the murdering of an innocent person. Um, there are a lot of scriptures that uh, either prove or corroborate that unborn children are people. But the one that I went over when I I, I, I spoke at your church. Um, I think is the most on point. So in, in the book of Exodus, we were told that, um, I don't have the scripture in front of me right now, uh, but we, we were told that um, if two men are fighting and one of them accidentally strikes a pregnant woman uh, so that uh, she gives birth, then if she just gives birth but there's no further injury, then the guy that hits her has to be fined. But if there is any further injury, then we are instructed to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Um, some people uh, have referred to that as the lex talionis, the, the eye for an eye standard. And I think it's a good general rule of what justice requires. So here you have that coming up in the context of what happens if you hurt an unborn baby. And we are told that if there's any further injury, including the baby dies, then you take the life of the person that killed the baby. This makes absolutely no sense unless unborn children are actually people. You know, we go back to Genesis 9, the, the covenant that God made with Noah after the flood, which is the first time that we see capital punishment authorized. Uh, he said, if anyone sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he made man. So unpacking that, that means that human life is so valuable because people are made in the image of God that if you do the most unthinkable thing, which is destroy the image of God, uh, the price that you have to pay for that is that you get destroyed. Um, and it makes sense. That's that's just justice. And here in Exodus, we're seeing that principle applied to unborn children, and it only makes sense if they are actually people. So then if you try to take intentional action to, you know, to kill a child, such as Planned Parenthood facilities, uh, you know, issuing abortion pills or, um, you know, uh, carving the baby up through 
uh, D&E abortion, which is truly a barbaric procedure, or partial birth abortion, or uh, any other kind of uh, trying to kill the baby, uh, according to uh, according to the Bible, that is murder. That is a murder of an innocent person. So um, here with um, giving the states, uh, or rather recognizing the rights of the states to protect the unborn, I think the Supreme Court finally freed the states to do uh, what the law of God uh, demands that the states do, which is protect the life of the unborn and treat them as people, just like the rest of us. Good. It's really good. A lot of people don't think about that. There's a lot of different verses you could go to, but, um, you know, and one of the things I talk about, I write about, um, you and I have had many conversations about, and, and you can kind of maybe connect these dots, you know, um, a great deal of the American legal system, you know, it, it was, our country was founded by, you know, devout Christian men. People are, oh, well, Benjamin Franklin was a deist. And it's like, yeah, but but nine out of ten colonels under General Washington were Presbyterian elders, right? Like devout Christian men, right? The You know, and, and, and a lot of the other founders that don't get talked about as much uh, are very much so. And, and then the great legal minds that came together to put together the foundation of our legal system, we leaned very heavily on English common law. And William Blackstone uh, wrote the commentary on English law. Is that the right title of the book? It commentaries on the laws of England, yeah. Commentaries on the laws of England. Um, and he was kind of an expositor and explainer and clarifier of the law. And, you know, Blackstone really went back, and so did English civil law. It went back to Israel's civil code in the Bible. And so Israel's civil code is not uh, a one-to-one for England, and it's not a one-to-one for America. But what the, the great confessions... Uh, the historic Christian faith would be the Westminster and the 16, the London Baptist Confession of 1689. Uh, they use language that said that the civil code is Israel's civil code is to be used um, to glean general equity. So, what is the purpose behind the law? What's the moral purpose that that God is communicating in this law? One uh, one instance they talk about having a parapet on the roof of your house. Well, people don't really hang out on the roofs of houses anymore. I know I don't. I've got a pretty steep angle. Um, but back in those days, that's where everyone gathered because of the temperatures and the heat and everything else. They gathered on the roof of their house, and, they, and, and it said that there should be a parapet on your house. And what that was is that was basically a fence or a banister or some type of protection to keep people from falling off. And so the general equity that you would find in that is that you're responsible for the health and well-being of the guests in your home. And so we see that in real estate law. If someone breaks their leg on your property, you're responsible for them, right? And so it's little things like this that, that all these laws that, that we've been in our entire lives, we we got them, you know, from English common law, Blackstone's interpretation, and then Israel civil code. Uh, it's influenced so much of what we do. So you see that and you see uh, specifically um, that 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 passage of, you know, and, and I think that's that exists in many states, if not all states today. If you kill someone and she's kill a woman and she's pregnant, it's a double homicide. That's pretty much common standard, right? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. So, you know, the, the, I think there has been absolutely nobody better at pointing out how the law um, protects unborn children in many other areas, you know, except abortion, than uh, Tom Parker, the Alabama Supreme Court oh, yeah. Chief Justice. I'm a, I'm a huge fan of his. Chief. Um, 
Yeah, he actually, you know, when, when Mississippi was asking the Supreme Court to take his case, they actually cited some of uh, Parker's writings picking up on some of these points. It was, it was a lot like what you were talking about, Brian, in it, trying to point out the, the, the logical inconsistency, saying, all right, many states have recognized that if you shoot a pregnant woman and she dies and the baby dies, that's a double homicide. How can that be true if the unborn child is not a person? Uh, kind of the same thing like if you wind up getting in a car accident uh, and you sue in tort for wrongful death. Well, if the woman that died was pregnant and the baby died too, then like what you can sue not only for the wrongful death of the woman, but the wrongful death of the child. That doesn't make any sense unless unborn children are actually human beings. And there are many other areas that uh, like that where the law protects the, li the life and the rights of unborn children. Uh, but then all of a sudden, you know, uh, you can come along and, and uh, kill them because the U.S. Supreme Court said so. And it makes no sense. Yeah. It's a weird thing. And, I, and I'm totally derailing a little bit here, but I've got you on and, and I'll let you talk about this. It, it almost it seems that the left standard of life is the mother's uh, desire for the child. Yeah. So, like, if you're carrying a baby and someone shot you and it was obvious, like, you know, that you were buying baby clothes or whatever, someone shot you, and it was like, oh, my gosh, they shot this pregnant woman and the baby died, and look, they look at the crib that they already got and everything else. They really wanted to have this baby. Or, you know, I'm, I'm taking this to the extreme to make the point. This woman wanted the baby, so therefore the baby was a life. Mm -hmm. And then... When a woman doesn't want the baby, it's basically like an intruder or um, what do you call it? a squatter, you know? Yeah. And and they need to go have it removed. And because the, the, the mother's desire is not to have the child, then the child do, it isn't considered a life. And so that, that seems to be where the left hinges their value of that life on. Uh, because, you know, radical leftists, if, you know, if, if a mom that wanted the baby you know, died or got in a car record, all the things that you listed, that they would they would be up in arms. That's so awful. That's so terrible. They would want justice. But then if a mom you know, again, so we're I'm 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 shooting the uh the the proverbial, you know, dead horse or kicking the proverbial dead horse repeatedly here, but you get it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. You know, Brian. Two two points in response to that. Number one, I remember watching a. Um, uh, a, a news story. I think it was probably about three or four years ago. I can't remember if it's on CNN or MSNBC, um, but it, they they did a uh, a story on a mom who had a. Um, I think it was an ectopic pregnancy, and it was one of those in incredibly rare instances where it seemed like we had a miracle where it worked out, where you know the baby lived, the mother lived, everybody was fine, and you know it in. Fairness, they were interviewing the mom about how she was facing pressure to get abortion, but she chose life, and the baby lived. And um, uh, you know that, that, that's, you know, I'm not trying to say here that you know in, in the incredibly rare cases of ectopic pregnancies that um, you know you can't do what needs to be done to save the mother's life. But 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 all, all, what I'm saying is at the end of that, that this liberal host was faced with the question of how do I commend this mother for making a courageous decision. Um, without affirming that an unborn child is a human being. So at the end of her report, she said she, she pretty much admitted that that was the dilemma. And she said, might I suggest that what makes you know a fetus a person is the feelings and the desire of uh, the parents to have them. And at that point, I wow. just, you know, I, I face palmed and I'm like, 
How stupid do you have to be? I'm sorry. You know, like let's take this logic to its conclusion. What if you know? What what if uh, you know? One day at home, your children who are already born are getting on your last nerve, and maybe in a moment of weakness, you find yourself wishing that you never had them. All right. I don't know if that's the thing. I haven't reached that point yet, but it, all I go to say, I can see how you know, in a moment of incredibly high frustration, you know, you might feel that way on the level of the emotions. Does that mean that your children that have been born are then no longer persons until you feel good towards them again? Uh, because that, you know, if you're applying the logic consistently, that's the outcome, and that's stupid. Yeah. Um, so then it comes down to, well, you know, well, the difference is they were born uh, and the other kid is not. So what is it? Is it the magic of the birth canal plus the warm feelings of the parent make, you know, somebody a, a, a person? That makes no sense either. Um, and to your other point about the squatter, too, uh, one, one thing that, you know, I've pointed out when I've gotten in pro-life debates, um, even if the left views them like a squatter, very interestingly, if you have a squatter on your property in an emergency, so like, let's say there's like a tornado coming by or something like that, and they are trying to hang on for dear life, you know what the interesting thing is? The law does not give you the right to kick them off of your property, even though they are trespassing. Now, they can be liable for whatever damage they caused while they were there, but you know, the law in other areas recognizes you can't send them back out into a tornado or a hurricane or something like that because at the end of the day, if it's an emergency and you have to choose, their life is more valuable than your property rights. Wow. But yet when it comes to abortion, you know, all of a sudden our convenience becomes more important than their life. And so that makes no sense. So it, it, abortion truly is a, a logical anomaly yeah, and a fallacy you know, needs to go away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's very interesting, and it's interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize that someone had actually came out and said that. That was just kind of like what I've observed it was kind of their <laughs> thoughts. And you're like, no, a lady actually said that, so that's interesting. All right, well, um, what do you want to tackle next? Are we going to talk about the uh, the the gun case in New York? Yeah, let's do that. Um, so this was a huge win for the Second Amendment. Um, uh, what happened was in in this case. New York, like a lot of northeastern and west coast states, uh, had laws that were very restrictive on the right to bear arms. I grew up in Maryland, and it was weird because my dad was the head of a uh, a church security team. My dad is ex-military. The team that he put together was either all ex-military or ex-cops. And because Maryland is so anti-gun, it it was it was crazy the amount of you know hoops that they had to jump through just to get everybody licensed, and the fees that they had to pay to keep everybody's license current. And you know these are but but by all means, competent and proficient marksmen that are there to save innocent lives in case a mad shooter walks in and starts shooting people up. So this is a very common sense thing that the state should have been uh, in favor of from the beginning, but they didn't because they're liberal states and that's what liberal states do. Uh, So New York, like Maryland, had laws that prohibited open carry um, and allowed concealed carry only if you could demonstrate a special need. Um, And and that special need is not just, um, you know, maybe like... You know, like, yeah, I know your viewers might not be able to see anything, but don't let my appearance fool you. I am not a very Jack guy. Okay. You know, so if I come across, uh, you know, somebody, you know, who's trying to rob me, um, you know, who, who's, uh, you know, a hundred pounds heavier than I am. And that's mostly muscle. Um, I would feel much better if I had a gun than if, uh, it was just, you know, a one-on-one fight with our bare hands. Yeah. You know, guns really are the great equalizer. They, they really are the thing that can put like a 95 pound woman on, uh, on equal footing with 300 pound man if a confrontation ever goes down. Yeah. Um, but despite that, a lot of Northeastern and West coast states think, you know what, it's just too dangerous to give average people, uh, the right to carry. So despite the fact that criminals have guns, uh, we're going to disarm the good guys. And if you get into, um, a problem call the, 
you know, in, into a pickle, call the cops and just, I don't know, just pray uh, yeah. until the cops get there. Right. And so, anyway, the, the, a constitutional challenge was brought under the Second Amendment. So, the operative part of the Second Amendment says, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Yeah. Uh, in 2008 and 2010, the Supreme Court handed down some pretty big wins for the right to keep arms. And that was great. Um, but, as Clarence Thomas put it once, when the, the court kept turning down cases involving the right to bear arms, he said, I find it highly unlikely that the framers of the Second Amendment... Uh, intended for it to only protect your right to carry a gun from the kitchen to the bedroom. Okay, but you know when uh, when you're only sticking up for the Second Amendment when it's keeping guns in the home, that's a logical outcome. Uh, so a lot of the lower courts were not doing justice to uh, the part that says you have the right to bear arms. Uh, so this case came up, but but thanks, uh, uh, yeah, I'll say it. Thanks to President Trump's appointment uh, to the bench, uh, appointments plural. I'm sorry. Um, that really has now created a, a court that is going to give very, very serious uh, examination to what the Constitution actually says. And here, what says the right to bear arms shall not be infringed, that means right, if you are an average law-abiding citizen, you have the right to carry firearms on you um, in, in, in case of confrontation with another person. So um, this was a big win for originalism because uh, instead of just letting judges read whatever they thought were reasonable limitations onto the Second Amendment, uh, the Supreme Court here said, okay, here, here's how this is going to work. If the words of the Constitution cover a person's conduct, then presumptively they are protected. Now, if the government wants to argue that there's an exception, it is the government's job to do the historical research and demonstrate that in 1791, when we adopted the Second Amendment, the people... Uh, had the, the people presumed that there was a well-recognized uh, historical exception that would apply. Yeah. Uh, for yeah, for instance, um, you know Blackstone, who you referenced earlier, he wrote that uh, in in 1765 when he wrote his commentaries that uh, in the British Empire uh, the carrying of dangerous or unusual weapons was a crime. Um, so. How does that apply today? Well, if you're carrying a handgun for self-defense, that is not a dangerous or unusual weapon. Um, so if you walk into church, you know, uh, to you, concealed carrying a handgun, you're probably going to be fine. If you walk into church with an RPG on your shoulder, uh, you know what? That's not a weapon that is commonly used for self-defense. That is a weapon that is used uh, to blow up large groups of people or do substantial property damage. So um, even though there were no RPGs in 1791, I think there's a good historical case that if you're walking around uh, openly with weapons like that, the government can probably step in and say, all right, you can't do that. But at the end of the day, though, that's not what most of us want. Most of us are not looking to mount, um, you know, technical machine guns on top of our cars or carry around explosives or flamethrowers or things like that. Instead, what we want is the right to carry um, to carry uh, handguns that are in common use in case we run into a confrontation with another person and they try to kill us. We just want the right to protect ourselves, and that's it. So I think um, I think as a practical matter, after uh, the Supreme Court made this decision. Um, I think all the states that have a concealed carry permit that is more restrictive than shall issue, uh, that's probably dead now. Um, well, real so quick, that, I, wanna, I wanna dig in on that a little bit, but um, first tell us, what is originalism? Uh, so originalism is the view that the Constitution has a fixed meaning um, and that it should be interpreted first according to its words. Um, you know, so what it actually says, that's, that's pretty, 
non-controversial um, proposition. But if there are any questions about what the words mean, then you look to history for the answer. The idea is it had a fixed meaning when it was adopted, and you have to um, you have to interpret the Constitution in light of what a reasonable person thought it meant at the time of its adoption. Um, that is in contrast to what we call the living constitution theory, and that's the theory that brought us Roe versus Wade and a whole bunch of other terrible decisions. And that view is, despite the fact that there has been no constitutional amendment, the constitution uh, somehow changes with the times, like its meaning changes. Um, and the judges are the ones that decide how the constitution changed. I'm I'm sorry. I mean, I don't mean to be ugly to people that hold that view, but I'm just going to straight up say that view has never made any sense to me. I mean, it's not just that it's wrong; it's that it's not coherent. All right, and that's that's where I have a problem. Like, how do you measure if the words don't change, if the people do not change their constitution? How in the world can you say with a straight face that the meaning of the constitution has changed over time? You know, there is a mechanism through which we can change what the Constitution means. It's called the amendment process. But if we don't have that, then you are simply hijacking the words of the Constitution and reading your own policy preferences into it if you say that the Constitution changes over time, even though there's been no amendment. So I am an originalist, uh, and, and most conservatives are as well. So uh, when I say it's a win for originalism, that's what I mean. Yeah. No, I just wanted, I, uh, wanted to clarify that just for our listeners so that they can begin to start thinking about this stuff correctly and, and, and have a point of reference and a lens because it matters. I remember one of the first time I heard originalism, like, what is that? I was studying, um, oh, my goodness, why can't I think of his name? Um, the most conservative Supreme Court justice in recent history Scalia? that passed away. Scalia, there it is. Yeah. Studying Scalia and originalism, I'm like, what does that mean? And then I got into it, and then it's, okay, well, that's verse basically this live and breathing document theory that means it just kind of changes. And it's, you know, so getting into those things and understanding it, I think it's good for people. And if they're not acquainted with it, um, hopefully your explanation will be able to help them. The other thing I would say with what you said, too, is that Trump um, appointed these uh, – justices um and that credits for the second amendment win but but i would also and again I'm, I'm i'm not the biggest trump fan in the world um but i'm a big on giving credit where credit is due yeah and and roe v wade was overturned because of him flat yeah. out like there's no there's no way around that right the that he said i remember watching a debate where he was debating hillary clinton on abortion and this is you know 20 you know mid 2016 or whatever and he's like, look, if I get in, I'm going to get two, maybe three Supreme Court picks. They're going to be conservative. They're going to overturn Roe versus Wade. And he does his whole thing. And it's exactly what happened, right? And it's, and, and we're uh -huh. so not used to people saying things and them doing it. It was just, just wild to go back and look at this five years later and be like, wow, he did exactly what he said he was going to do. So yep. that, that's um, uh, a piece. And then um, and I wanted to, uh, before we move on to the next case, uh, or the the actually the um, biblical lens uh, for that case, uh, the Alabama Sheriff's Association right here in Alabama. So we actually had um, a similar battle, and I want to bring you know refresh people's memories on this. Mm -hmm. So the Alabama Sheriff's Association, um, again, we're very pro law enforcement. Uh, we we love we love our police and our law enforcement officers, but this was an interesting thing that happened because the people of Alabama, we are a, a dark red conservative state. Um, the people love their guns here and they want their ability to be able to carry a pistol in their car or concealed on their person without having to go and pay $20 or whatever it is for this permit. And so for 12 years, uh, there has been a permitless carry bill 
that was submitted and that it would never get out of committee. And if it ever did get out of committee, it never got signed year after year after year. And we've got like 30 some odd states that have these bills. So it's like, you know, maybe early on you could, you could buy some of the arguments of, Oh, it's going to make things more dangerous for law enforcement or whatever like this. It's like, well, now we got 30 states doing it. Or I don't know what the number is. So I always mm-hmm. want to be specific when I'm hyperbolically and, you know, whimsically throwing out numbers. It's right yeah. around 30. And so, um, you know, there, we have evidence to show that, yeah, no, it's not actually going to be. And so what we found was that the Alabama Sheriff's Association, not the Sheriff's Association, but sheriffs across the state were receiving around $20 million a year um, in those $20 permit fees, right? And they use that. It's kind of like a slush fund that they can buy things with, you know, buy extra body armor, buy cars, buy, you know, whatever they used it for. Um, but, you know, that was the... the I'm all about cops having the money they need to get the things that they need to be able to do their jobs. But if it's charging people for their constitutional rights, I don't think that that's the best way. And I think that they should go to appropriations and figure out a different way to get the money they need to do the job safely. And so I, I, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I, I agree with you. It, um, we, uh, in, in late 2021, um, I had somebody approach me and ask if we could bring a constitutional challenge to, um, you know, the, our, our concealed uh, carry scheme. And like you, I found myself thinking, you know, we're, what's going on here is we're, we're paying the government to exercise our constitutional rights. Should yeah. it be that way? Um, there's another thing, too. Uh, the Alabama Constitution at the time, uh, in, in 2016, was amended. And it said that any infringement on the right not to keep arms but to bear arms has to pass what's called the strict scrutiny test. In, in legal circles, that for a long time was considered uh, the toughest legal standard to meet. And it means that uh, 90% of the time or more, the government loses if you know there's ever a lawsuit. Um, and so I looked at that, yeah, I looked at that and I thought, you know what? Um, I think we can sue under the Alabama Constitution and, and probably win. Now, the only reason I held off is I got thinking what you were talking about. As I said, this is where our local law enforcement gets a lot of their money, and they, they should not have been taxing uh, the people for their constitutional rights uh, in the first place. But I thought, you know what, look, We've only got a few months here before the legislature goes back into session. I'm going to call on them. I'm going to give them one chance to fix this the right way, the easy way, by passing good legislation. Uh, Legislation that both uh, lets the people carry and also uh, solves the money problem for, for the sheriffs. But if they don't do it, then I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to sue and bring a constitutional challenge. So I figured, you know, if I hear of any abuse stories around the states of an average, you know, law-abiding citizen who, you know, maybe he got arrested for having a gun one day after his concealed carry permit expired, heck yes, we, we would sue and defend that guy. Uh, but in the meantime, I wanted to give the legislature a chance to fix this the easy yeah. way. And I, I was really, really pleased to see that they uh, they, they went along with Andrew Sorrell's bill. They, they provided, I think, like a three-year fund for the sheriffs to yeah. kind of wean themselves off of this. And so, you know, win-win. We, we, you know, the people's constitutional rights are protected, and we didn't defund the police in the process. So yep. everybody wins. Yep. And so as we dug into that, what we found, not only so they were getting that $20 million a year uh, in selling those permits, but they, the Alabama Sheriff's Association was actually working with Moms Demand Action, which is a radical left mm. uh, gun lobby. And so the sheriffs were working with a radical left gun lobby to lobby against the people of Alabama's ability to carry a pistol without a permit in their car or on their person in a concealed state. Um, and so one of our reporters reached out to them and, and reached out to the head of the Alabama Sheriff's Association at the time and said, Hey, um, we heard a rumor that you guys are working with moms demand action, this radical left gun lobby or anti-gun lobby. 
um, you know, can you speak to that? And they just completely admitted it. Absolutely, we are. This is why. And they said the same thing right here in Alabama, okay? The Second Amendment was only meant for people's households. They said the Second Amendment <laughs> is only meant for people's households. I'm like, wow. we're, we're in Alabama. What are you talking about? <laughs> and, and, and the guy said, you know, um, essentially, um, you know, I mean, think about it. Back in the day when people were riding around on horses, they weren't carrying guns with them. I'm like, have you ever watched a John Wayne movie? Yeah. <laughs> well, John you know? Wayne, I mean, you know, well, John Wayne did carry that big can of pepper spray around. That's yeah, what he used to fight. That's right. He was too Tasers. Tasers yeah. and pepper spray. <laughs> Don't let your horse get a hold of that pepper spray. That'd be real bad for the horse and those nostrils. <laughs> but um, so that was what he said. And our reporter continued to push him and said, you know, well, the Supreme Court would disagree with you on your statement that it, that it's, that it was limited to the, you know, Second Amendment's limited to people's households. And he goes, yeah, I know, but they're wrong. And and so Craig, the reporter, said, well, would you be in favor of legislation that would restrict the Second Amendment to people's households? And he said, absolutely. It would never get passed, Gosh. but I would support that. And so wow. we wrote that story up. Uh, the NRA and the National Association of Gun Rights picked, got caught wind of it. It went viral. They came in. Uh, Andrew Sorrell was already doing some great stuff with, I think it was Rep. Shane, uh, Str- Shane Stringer. They had the legislation that was already teed up, and so it was kind of this perfect storm of the reporting that we did that allowed the people to really put the pressure on their legislators, um, the NRA and the NAGR being in here, and then the work that um, Andrew Sorrell has been doing for years on this and, and Rep. Shane Stringer. Uh, I, I feel like I'm saying his name right. I hope I'm not butchering his name. Sorry if that's the wrong name. But they were able to get that legislation passed through and got a, a, a major uh, conservative victory for, for Alabamians. Excellent. Fantastic. Brian, that is fantastic work on uh, on the news front. So th- th- thanks for what you did to help make that happen. Uh, but but it's crazy. It's, you know, that view, I mean, no disrespect intended to uh, this guy who made those statements. I mean, we, we love law enforcement. We, we support him. But look, the Second Amendment exists in case America gets filled with law enforcement officers who think like that. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry, you know, and I, I, I guess, I, you know, yes. it's like just disarm yourselves. Uh, we'll take care of you. Yeah. When in human history has that ever gone badly? Yeah. OK, you know, it's um, and then you think about the, the patriots that assembled at, at Lexington and Concord. I mean, you know, you wonder if any of them were like, well, we actually got to wait until the government comes in our house and then we yeah. can start firing. Them. No, yeah. They went out. They met them on the battlefield field they started shooting and that set off the war that eventually led to our independence i mean no serious student of history can argue that it was meant to be limited to the home or even that uh it's better for society if the people are disarmed i'm sorry our history proves it wrong we won the most valuable right that we have the right to govern ourselves because we had guns and we were willing to use them and that's something we wanted to keep when 1791 rolled around wow yeah, it was an interesting thing. I moved here from Colorado like eight years ago. And even, you know, before, I don't know, five or 10 years before that. So you're looking at 15 years ago, 18 years ago, whatever it was in the state of Colorado, you were allowed to carry a pistol in your car without a permit. And you're talking about Colorado, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's just, it's interesting to see, you know, you would, th- everyone thinks that Alabama is just, you know, this conservative bastion and we should be. And that is our vision is for a free and flourishing Alabama where, the legislature actually reflects the people, and the people are the, are the greatest in the country, uh, most conservative, God-fearing, hardworking, amazing people. Uh, but our government is, uh, you know, as good as we are at football, we are at corruption in government. Those, that's what we do well here. <laughs> yeah. So. 
Yep, you're right about that. All right, well, moving on, um, if you want to go through uh, biblical uh, premise for self-defense and, and being armed. Sure, absolutely. Um, you know, as Christians, you know, even though the Constitution uh, does authorize the, the keeping and bearing of arms and in self-defense, if God didn't go there, then, you know, even as much as I would not like this conclusion, he's God, I'm not, and it'd be my job to get with the program. So if we, you know, I had uh, I had some people in my church uh, come to me not too long ago wondering questions like, well, keeping and bearing arms and self-defense seems right to me, but is, is that right according to the word of God? I think there are a lot of people that have questions like that, and I think they ought to be commended for uh, desiring to know what God says, and they shouldn't have anything to fear about it. Um, so when you analyze what the Bible says about it, I think the Bible does recognize the right to self-defense and the right to use arms in uh, support of self-defense. Um, a couple key passages, again, it, we, we're told in Exodus, again, I don't have the um, reference right in front of me at the moment, uh, but I, I remember the text. Uh, it, it, is, it was written that if the thief is caught uh, breaking, entering at night, and he is struck so that he dies, then... There's no, I think the word New American Standard uses is blood guiltiness. There, there's no blood guiltiness in the one that struck him. But then it says, but if the sun has risen on him and he's struck so that he dies, then his blood guiltiness will be upon him. All right, so if we unpack that, first of all, you have it right there in the Old Testament law that under certain circumstances, if you strike uh, an intruder like a thief, and I think it would apply a fortiori then, if it, if it applies to a thief, then it certainly also applies to somebody that isn't just there to take your stuff, but somebody that is there to kill you or do mm. you substantial bodily harm. It applies a fortiori to, and, and, and it demonstrates that, yes, there is an indeed a right to use self-defense and even deadly force in self-defense. Now, there are limitations on that. Um, as it said, if the sun has risen on him and you do it anyway, then um, your blood guiltiness will be upon you. So there are two possible interpretations with that that I see based on the text. Um, one possible interpretation is if it happens at night and you strike him so that you hit him um, and he dies, then you're innocent. But if it happens during the day, um, you are guilty. But then the other one, it, it, it's very interesting the verb tense that it uses, and and I don't know Hebrew, okay, so I, I don't I, I can't unpack with precision how this worked in the original language, but the sun has risen on him, so that implies that the, the there has been a passage of time between when the event happened and when you killed the guy. Um, uh, so the, there, there are two possible ways to look at that. Uh, I think the daylight-night distinction doesn't necessarily hold up because um, I, I can see that there's a little bit of a, a, a logical basis for that. Um, if somebody breaks into your house at night and you fight so that you die, um, I suppose you know the, the argument is that um, you, know, you couldn't see the guy very well. You didn't know if he was there to just kill you or to take your stuff, so that's why it's okay uh, to kill him because you couldn't see him. But if it happens during the day, you can see and uh, you don't have to kill him. The problem with that argument, well, there are a couple problems with that argument. Number one, um, if that's the case, if we take that logic to its conclusion, then, you know, the the, the, the thieves that break into your house, uh, if they knew the law of Moses, they would break in during the day brazenly and just kind of smile at you as they pull a sword on you and say, you know what, um, you can't use deadly force against me because... Uh, it's daytime. And so actually what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and kill you and you can't fight back because that's what the law says. Yeah. Does that make really a sense. sound? Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't make, you know, so here, here's, here's the thing with biblical interpretation. I think 
you know, and again, you know, your pastor Brandon or many others can probably lay out uh, better rules of hermeneutics than I can. But it seems to me that if there are two possible ways that you can interpret the text that are faithful to the words, but one makes sense and the other doesn't, that's when it's okay to go with the one that makes sense. You know, the yeah. Bible challenges our, our notions of common sense sometimes. And if that's the case, if there's a clear conflict between what we think is right and what the Bible says, we have to change what we think is right to fit the Bible. But in cases where there are two possible readings of the text, one makes sense, the other doesn't, I think that's where notions of common sense can kind of come into play. Um, I think if you go with the interpretation that it's after the event, that makes sense because there's been some passages of time presumably at that point the thief is gone so if you strike him so that you kill him that means that means that you left your home you went after the guy and then rather having you know the police arrest him or something um you chase him down and killed him because you were mad that he stole your property well at that point you become the aggressor because at that point that you know the, the threat to your life is over and then you decided to go after him yourself um, and the proper remedy is to get your stuff back and maybe have the guy punished, but there's no reason to kill him after he's made off with your stuff and the threat to your life is over. So that's why I think the second interpretation makes sense. Um, a few other passages that we see in the New Testament, in Luke 22, Jesus is telling his disciples to buy swords for self, or buy swords if they don't have them. And the immediate context suggests it's because, um, Christ at that point was going to be considered a criminal and a transgressor, even though he wasn't. Uh, but because of that, people would be more likely to attack them for being associated with Jesus. Um, you might ask, well, what about turn the other cheek? Okay, what Jesus said is, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. Uh, that refers to a sharp, open-handed slap given as an insult. Uh, meant, it's something that is meant to get you angry and get you to fight back. In cases like that, turning the other cheek is the way to defuse a situation. But Jesus, what he did not say is that, you know, if a thief breaks into your house and kill your wife, throw him your child as well. Okay. Like yeah. the idea of substantial bodily harm or death is not even in view there. Yeah. Uh, what, what about him telling Peter to put his sword back in his place in the garden of Gethsemane? Well, Jesus went on to explain why he told him to do that. He said, how then would the scriptures be fulfilled, which say it must happen this way? There may have very well have been other times where it was perfectly fine to fight in self-defense or defense of others, but Jesus told Peter to put his sword away because the scriptures were uh, were set about him that he had to go that way. And if Peter would have fought to uh, try, try to um, save Jesus's life by force, number one, it would have thwarted God's plan of redemption, and that was not acceptable. And number two, um, it was just Peter uh, with the sword versus the crowd. There was no reasonable chance of success. If he would have kept fighting, he would have died. Yeah. So those are the two reasons why Jesus told Peter to put his sword away. But he never said, throw your sword away. There yeah. is a critical difference. Yeah, no, I think that's huge because people don't think about it. It's like, well, he's right beside Jesus and he's had a sword the whole time. It's not like Jesus was like, oh, man, I didn't see that sword. You better get rid of it now because I see it. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, that's not real. The other interpretation of that I think is really interesting. I heard, I can't remember who I heard say it. It was recently. It was in like the last six months. You know, he hit the guy's ear, but he was going for his head, right? He didn't like pull out like, you know, like a French musketeer sword and, and like, oh, I got your ear, right? Like he actually, <laughs> he was taking a swing to chop the guy's head off and the guy moved and what he hit was his ear. So yeah. he, he was going in, you know what I mean? <laughs> like mm -hmm. he was going after it and he got an ear rather than a head. And it was like, wow. And now when you read it with that in perspective, you're like, that's, that's exactly what happened. So that's um that is definitely not what is taught in most pulpits uh around this country and that's why uh, i think it's important for us to be weighing in uh on these issues well we've got about seven minutes matt so um 
I think religious liberty, we don't necessarily need the biblical support for that, right? I think <laughs> it's kind of interpreted. So jump in, talk to us about this football coach um, and, and, and what that means for us. Sure, absolutely. All right, so uh, the, the plaintiff in this case was named Joe Kennedy. Uh, he was an ex-Marine, and when he got out of the Marines, he took a job as a uh, assistant public high school football coach in Washington State. And he was actually inspired by the Christian movie Facing the Giants to find a way to glorify God in um, his, his role as a football coach. So he made up his mind after games, I'm gonna go out to the 50, I'm gonna take a knee, I'm not gonna force the students to come along or anything like that, um, but I'm just gonna take a knee and visibly give thanks to God for uh, for, for the game. Um, so he started doing that. After a while, his students started joining him. He said, well, it's a free country, you can join me if you want to, but I'm not gonna, uh, I'm not going to force you. And even players from the other team would. You know, we see things like this in college football and in the NFL all the time. That's that's what was going on there. Well, the, the school board eventually fired him for that because um, they they claimed you're violating the Establishment Clause. You are a government official and you are, uh, you are not allowed to pray while you're in uniform and while you're working for us. So he sued. Uh, very long story short, it made it all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. And it was set up. Uh, to 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 present you know another epic win for originalism, um, so here, here's here's the background to the establishment clause. The establishment clause was originally meant to stop the establishment of a national church like the Church of England. Uh, for a long time in the West, really probably from about the time of Constantine up until um, the American Bill of Rights. Uh, the governments in the West thought that Christianity was a good thing. They wanted to encourage it, but they thought it was their job to enforce all aspects of Christianity, not not just like the moral parts that teach us how to relate to each other, like don't kill, don't steal, stuff like that. But it was it, the government thought it was their job to enforce um, doctrinal orthodoxy, like, okay, this is the proper view of this theological issue. You are going to go to a church that believes this, and if you don't, we're going to throw you in jail. Um in America, we realized that's going too far. So we pulled back on that, and that was a good thing. It guaranteed religious freedom. And so there, there still is an objectively right answer to, you know, which church is right. But what we realized is we're going to leave that for God to judge, and we're not going to start enforcing that at the edge of the sword anymore. Yeah. Um, 1940s come along, and in the, the, the U.S. Supreme Court completely unhinged itself from original intent, and they, they, they warped the Establishment Clause to mean that Pretty much anything having to do with God has to be separated from government. So that's what was used to kick prayer out of public schools, to kick out uh, the scripture reading that used to open up public schools. It's what was used to kick out the Ten Commandments from public schools. And it's also the thing that groups like the Freedom From Religion Foundation, the delightful trolls from Wisconsin, uh, used to intimidate you know local governments to getting rid of nativity scenes at Christmas or Ten Commandments displays, you know, things like that. Um, but fortunately, in this case, the U.S. Supreme Court, when they considered the Establishment Clause issue, they said, you know what, um, we are finally abandoning uh, the approach that we've adopted for about the last 70 years. Instead, here's what we're going to say. From here on out, whenever we're in evaluating an Establishment Clause claim, the Establishment Clause has to be understood in light of history. If there was a practice of the Founding Fathers, like opening Congress in prayer every single day, uh, if that if that practice was protected then it has to be protected now and applying all of that to this case because coach kennedy did not force anybody to join him there is no establishment clause problem here so uh coach kennedy won i know i actually got to meet him a few weeks after his his court case he was just thrilled that because this has been like a seven-year legal battle for him so uh it, it was uh i got to congratulate him in person um after uh after that victory 
Um, but going forward here, I think this is going to destroy about 90% of what groups like the Freedom From Religion Foundation and the ACLU and the Southern Poverty Law Center use to suppress religious freedom. Wow. So what's left is that um, the government may not use actual force um, to to force people to uh, agree with a religious orthodoxy that they don't want to agree with. And that is completely fine. I am okay with that. Yeah, that was that. never the intention. Yeah, bingo. But, you know, th th this nonsense about using the Establishment Clause to drive uh, non-coercive prayer or Bible readings or, or, or public acknowledgement of God's out of the public square, um, I think about 90% of that is going to be gone now after the Kennedy decision. So it was a huge monumental win for uh, the Establishment Clause and for religious liberty, and the country is going to be a lot better off for it. Yeah. I'm going to try and make a point in a short amount of time, which is not my gift. I think Matt and I, I both struggle with that. Yeah, <laughs> we had a I meeting do. yesterday. <laughs> oh, anyway. Um, so one of the things that I think happens um, when we hear about separation of church and state, people just have zero point of reference when they hear that. Oh, separation of church and state. So people can't pray in school. We can't, you know, and it's like, no church and church and state. So church state, that's two spheres that God has ordained. They're governing institutions that he's created for, um, you know, for human flourishing, there's three forms of government. One is the home, two is the church, three is the is the government, right, or the state, as you hear at separation of church and state. And they each have roles and responsibilities that God has given them that they're responsible for and how they carry those certain things out. And when they're carried out faithfully the way that the Bible says, you actually have peak human flourishing. And so what they're saying, and I probably what Jefferson was referring to and that letter that he wrote where it was brought up, but it, Jefferson, it wasn't Jefferson's idea to say separation of church and state. That was a huge reason that everyone was fleeing to America in the first place. When, when the church has the power of the sword, that is a problem. And what that means is, is when the church starts to carry out the functions of a government or the government is trying to carry out the function of a church, that's an issue. The church has things that it's supposed to do that God has told it to do. The state, the civil magistrate, has certain things that it's supposed to be doing. They are the ones that are supposed to be punishing the evildoer, right, and rewarding good mm -hmm. behavior. Uh, the yep. church is supposed to be preaching the word, preserving the word, and administering the sacraments. Uh, and then the home is there for discipleship and procreation and these other things. And so each of these three spheres has instruction, and when they're functioning properly, it's good. Well, because we're fallen creatures, um, we we always there's there's a hunger and a lust for power. And you get church, and when church becomes powerful, you get the Roman Catholic Church. And when you have the Roman Catholic Church, the church has, now has the power of the state, and the church is influencing the state in a way that it was never meant to. And so yeah. there needed to be a degree of separation of that to keep the church from doing the things that the government is supposed to be doing and the government from doing the things that the church was supposed to be doing. But the thing about all three of those institutions is that they are submitted equally under King Jesus. And when yeah. they're submitted equally under King Jesus, that means— that his rules apply in all of them. So it's like, oh, well, this is state. That means Jesus isn't here. No, Jesus created the state too. And he said, this is how it's supposed to behave, right? Yep. Jesus created the church and said, this is how it's supposed to behave. And he created the home and said, this is how it's supposed to behave. So by keeping the church out of the state, that's not keeping Jesus out of the state. That's that. That's keeping the blending functions of two institutions of government that God created. So anyway. Agreed. Yeah, I, I, I agree 100%. Uh, 100%. You go back to Romans 13, and it's fascinating. 
uh, that, that's probably the most dispositive passage that we have on uh, the government in the Bible. And it says that uh, the, the, it tells us to submit to government because it derives its authority from God. So at the time, you know, the, the Roman emperor was, was a uh, demented pagan named Nero, but, you know, God still said, hey, that's my servant, all right? And despite the fact that he's worshiping false gods, he's a little bit demented. He still is doing some of the functions like keeping the peace of the empire, things that I want him to do. Um, so despite the fact that you're right, the state is not the church and vice versa, both are equally uh, under God. So this notion that God and Jesus have nothing to do with the role of civil government, it, it is something that uh, is not true. It is something that is completely foreign to the American system of government and something that didn't come up until the late 1940s. But it's ahistorical, and I'm glad to see the U.S. Supreme Court has finally thrown that approach out. Love it. Man, I could sit here and talk to you for hours about all this stuff. This is fun, um, but I know you got to go, uh, as do I. And so, um, do you have any other thoughts? Or are you good? No, I think uh, I think you got it. Um, you know, the, the, these three wins, and then plus West Virginia versus EPA, which which stopped uh, the federal government from absolutely destroying America's energy sector and the economy. That was huge too. Uh, but I, I would just leave the listeners with this. Um, we finally have the Supreme Court that many of us have been praying for for years. So number one, don't forget to thank God for that. And number two, please keep praying uh, for, for those in authority because the, the, the Supreme Court is doing so much good right now to correct wrongs that I think if I were the devil, I would be putting the Supreme Court towards the top of hell's hit list. Uh, so that's all the reason why we need to be praying for, for wisdom for the justices, for courage for them, uh, for them to be able to have the backbone to stand their ground and do what's right despite whatever pressures they're facing. So keep, thank God for the court, but keep praying for it. Awesome. Well, thank you, Matt. And thank you guys for tuning in until next time, put your trust in God and keep your powder dry. <laughs>